I'd like to start out by thanking you guys for all the nice emails and all the comments that you've been leaving on iTunes and for telling your friends and helping spread the word about this show. It's really helping the show grow fast and uh, the audience is picking up really quickly and I appreciate it because it's all because of you, so thank you. And I promise that if you would send in emails and post comments on iTunes that I would read some of them on the air. So here goes. This is from Pig Farmer Jr. I've listened to two episodes back to back and I cannot recommend this enough. It's real people discussing life. It's two friends having a conversation that you get to eavesdrop on, only more interesting. It's much better than most of the crap on the internet, and while that isn't saying a lot, it's sure saying something. Even pig farmers like to hear Otis and his friends talking about what's real. Thanks, Otis. Thank you, Pig Farmer Jr., and a sincere thank you to everyone who's been helping spread the word. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my hotel room in Newcastle, England. Played a sold out show last night in Newcastle and played a sold out show the night before in Glasgow, Scotland. So the tour is off to a great start. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And the show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Brian Henneman. Brian sings and plays guitar in a band called the Bottle Rockets. And they're based out of St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out everything you need to know about Brian at BottleRocketsMusic.com. The first time I ever saw the Bottle Rockets was at the patio in Indianapolis, Indiana, sometime in the mid-90s, and they were opening up for Uncle Tupelo, and I was one of 11 people there. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. It was great. And then years later, they invited me to come tour with them as an opening act on a couple different tours. It was a time when I had nothing going on whatsoever, so it was actually a really nice break for me, and I appreciate it to this day. I'm very thankful of that. But some of my best memories were sitting up late at night listening to Brian tell stories. He has some of the best road stories I've ever heard. And he's actually the first person that I thought of when I wanted to do this show. And he was the first person I contacted. But it took a while before we could get together. But we ended up catching up in Atlanta, Georgia in a hotel room. And he just played two and a half hour show with his band, The Bottle Rockets. And he's suffering from flu He was just getting over that and wasn't feeling really great, but he's a gamer, and we set up and had a nice conversation. Here's Brian Henneman. I remember that. Woolworths. Woolworths in uh, downtown Festus. It was right by the cash registers when you'd check out. They had like, I don't know what was on that rack, but they, they had like four or five little guitars up on stands up high on this rack. And this one, it was this kind of like purple and yellow sunburst thing called a Tell Star. 
And I bugged my dad for that and bugged him for it. I think it was $19 or something like that. And eventually, well, it wasn't even a holiday. He just got it for me. And uh, that was pretty exciting. I didn't know how to play it. I thought those dots on the neck were where you put your fingers. I didn't know that you had to tune it or anything. So I, I couldn't figure out why the music didn't sound right. You know, I'm putting my fingers on the dots. And then there's those two dots part there. I figured that was a fancier chord up there. So I just kind of goofed around with it and eventually just took it apart and spray spray painted it and <clears throat> never figured out how to put it back together. And that was the end of that one. But uh, it was fun for a while. I, I didn't really start to learn until I got a acoustic, which was that was years later, probably 1976. I was probably about nine when I got that Telstar. So the acoustic would have been 76, which would have made me about 15. I know it was 76 because it was a bicentennial acoustic guitar. So, yeah, some a little harmony, something or other. So, was it red, white, and blue? It wasn't. It it wasn't that. I had one of those years later, but this one was. It had some kind of commemorative bicentennial something on it. And uh, that's the one I learned to play on. But uh, the, the first one was just a little kid goofing off. But, I, you know, the, the little kid thought he wanted one. So, <laughs> so, so that's something. Back in the early days of playing music, you know, uh, we had, it, it was like, you know, basically we were playing in our, bedrooms and basements and if we were lucky we would play at like a high school talent show so mark was in like the you know the, the enemy band it's like you know i was in the band with this guy scott summers and then bob parr who later went on to be in chicken truck and uh we had a drummer named evan sauer and then I, we went through a lot of drummers we were like spinal tap we went through lots of drummers but evan sauer i think made it to the talent show with us but anyway, Mark was in the 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 opposing enemy band. You know, we were like we were like the punk rock band that didn't really know how to play that good. And Mark was like this guy that knew how to play really good. And they were like doing like sticks covers or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we were we were more apt to like make fun of him and his band because it was the sour grapes that, you know, we can't play, but you know, uh, they suck because they can play. You know, it's like you don't have to play to be good. So, uh, in fact, you shouldn't have to know how to play. You know, we were totally into the punk rock thing because it was it was helping us with our self esteem at that time. And uh, so we played the talent show, and they played the talent show. And I don't think either one of our bands won. It was like you know, probably some girl singing like something, you know, something from some show tune or something probably won the talent show. But uh, anyway, it was. As we went through drummers in our band, which was at that time called Scott Hollywood and the Blue Moons, <laughs> we eventually dropped the Scott Hollywood and we're just the Blue Moons. But we went through lots of drummers, Evan Sauer, Gary Bleckley. Uh, yeah, it might have, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, we were out of drummers in town. You know, there was none left. And we have this friend, Scott Taylor, you know, who has gone on to write a lot of songs with us. But he was encouraging our little punk rock band. And he came to us with the idea. He was a school teacher, and he taught Bob Parr, and he also taught Mark Ortman. And he didn't teach me because I was older than those guys, and I, was, I didn't go to the same school. But anyway, he came to us with the idea. He, he taught Scott Summers, too. So he, he came to us with the idea, uh, why don't you guys consider Mark Ortman? 
We're like, no way. No, uh-uh-uh-uh. There is no way we're getting that guy in this band. No way. Uh-uh. Ain't gonna happen. And he said, well, you should just consider it, you know, because he he probably would would play with you guys. And we're like, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Eh, he played in the Sticks band. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns out that he, somehow or other, Scott Taylor talked us into it. And I forget what year that would have been. Probably... 81 maybe i think 1980 or 81 probably 81 that he came over i think we were rehearsing in my parents basement and brought his little drum set and set up and man he was like a lot better than the guys we were drumming with and 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 then he decided he wanted to play with us and and we all of a sudden we felt kind of weird because it's like we couldn't figure out why he wanted to play with us you know because if he was like that good why would he want to play with us and uh we still don't know why, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was like 1981 and, and he's uh, still, he just drummed behind me tonight, you know, in 2013. So it's kind of like he walked in and, and stayed never. I've never wanted him to leave and I will never quit until he does. <laughs> <laughs> The Blue Moons were, you know, struggling for gigs. You know, this was this was probably early. It was early 80s, 81, 82. And we tried to learn cover songs. Of course, we weren't learning any songs anybody really wanted to hear, you know, and, and stuff like that. But And we were trying to play these little bar rooms and stuff, and they'd hire us one time and never hire us back because nobody really liked us because, you know, we didn't play any songs they knew. Because people, you know, they wanted to hear the top 40, and we were doing stuff like do-wah-diddy-diddy and stuff like that, and they didn't want to hear that stuff back in those days. But uh, but anyway, somehow, we did a gig in a bar in Belleville, Illinois, and I can't remember the name of the bar, but it was with this, uh, this band, Joe Camel and the Caucasians was the name of the band. So it was like this little local bar and we had, they had two bands one night. I don't know. We probably got paid 50 bucks or something and, you know, and played with them. But anyway, through this Joe Camel, he said, you, you guys, I could get there. We're doing a show with these other guys we know from Belleville. They're called the primitives. And it's at this place called the leader crans. And, you know, I can probably get you on that, that bill. And we were like, sure, sure. That'd be great. Let's do it. So the leader crans was like some old German, like VFW hall type place. And so it's, you know, it's a three band bill. It's us first, Joe Campbell and the Caucasians, and then this band, the primitives who we don't know who the hell the primitives are. And so <clears throat> I'm hanging out with the, the first friend I make at the thing. Cause this was in Belleville. We were from, you know, Crystal City, Festus, Missouri. We were, you know, long way from home, you know, 60 miles or whatever. We didn't know nobody except Joe Campbell and we didn't even really know him. So I was looking for somebody to hang out with, and I was hanging out with uh, the lady that was taking the money at the door, who was like, you know, the first one I made friends with over there, and she was really friendly, and I liked her a lot. And uh, turns out, you know, her, her name was Joanne. Joanne Tweedy was her name. And so she was like my first friend at the Liederkranz. And then that was, it was through her, this is, this is before we even played a note of music, that she introduced me to her son, Jeff. Okay, so Jeff was in this band, The Primitives. So that's the first time I met him. So I met the leader Kranz, making friends with his with Jeff's mom. And then she introduced me to him. And they were like kids at this time, you know. It's like she drove them to the gig. Because if this was a bit this would have been 81, you know, something like that. And they were born like 66, 67. 
You know, how old does that make them? They weren't very old. And so anyway, so I met Jeff and I liked him. You know, he was great. He was as, you know, as cool as his mom. And, you know, so then all of a sudden I made two little friends there. And, and so we go up. I didn't meet anybody else in the band till after they played. So we go up and play our little thing, whatever it is. You know, I thought we were okay. And then Joe Campbell did his thing. And, you know, uh, there was nothing so great. And then all of a sudden these primitives come out. And, and it was like, it was like, there was like hundreds of people at this show, but they were all out in the, like the, the yard. And while we played and while Joe Campbell played, they pretty much stayed out there. There was a little smattering of people inside, but the primitives hit the stage and all of a sudden the whole place, everybody comes inside and it was like, you know, packed with people. And then they get out and play and it was this Jeff I just met. And then these other guys and, and they were freaking fantastic. I mean, you know, it's like, they were like, like way better than we were. I mean, it's like, maybe not necessarily in the technical end, but just as far as like scope and vision and what they were doing, you know, they were like a friggin' knockdown drag out friggin' experience. And, and, you know, we were, I don't know, we were different from that. We, we hadn't quite, you know, had anything to ramp us up. There was no competition, you know, that we'd ever met up with yet at that point. So these guys came out and kind of blew us away. So then, you know, I had to meet them after the show, and it was it was Mike Heidorn was the drummer, and Jay Farrar, who was the one that didn't talk to me, and then uh, his brother, Jay's brother, uh, Wade, was the singer. And, you know, I didn't really talk to him either. So the Farrar boys I didn't really talk to that night, but Jeff and Mike were, you know, like really friendly, kind of cool people. And that's how we met those guys. We did a couple more shows over there with them, over and... Uh, Still, it's like very limited talking to Jay. It was mostly all Jeff and some, you know, and Mike when I could. And then years and years, years later after, well, it wasn't years and years later, but I guess it was, come to think of it, because it wasn't until 1988 that we had lost track of those guys. You know, it's like we had been, uh, we, the gigs were done over there. We, we, were, we were off like, trying to be a country cover band down in our hometown and stuff, you know, doing stuff like that. And then uh, years later, it was 1988, I was looking in the St. Louis local newspaper, and there was this new band. It was like they used to have like the, lo- the new band local spotlight feature in the, you know, newspaper on Thursdays, I think it was. And it said there was a new band called Uncle Tupelo. And it was like, it was like, and we had started a new band too. We had broke up the Blue Moon and started a band called Chicken Truck. So that was our country band. And so then all of a sudden, we see this band. We loved the name Uncle Tupelo. And then we read further and found out it was the guys. It was the primitives. <laughs> and it was like, whoa, it's the primitives. And it was the same thing happened to them as what happened to us. It's like they, their lead singer left, and they continued on and started a new band with what was left. And that's what we did, too, because our lead singer left the Blue Moons, and then so we just continued on, changed the name to Chicken Truck. So it was kind of like we did the same thing. And so we went up, we had to go up and see them. You know, we were just like, well, shoot, we haven't seen those guys in years. So we go up and see them. And uh, once again, same thing, you know, they're freaking fantastic. They, they were better at doing what they were doing. You know, their version of what we were doing was better. <laughs> it just was so it, we were just like, well, you know, but this time we were like old, older and wiser and, and more angry and more apt to like retaliate 
So that's whenever we dropped, the, we, we kept the country thing, but we just decided that we will get the loudest amps and the craziest guitars and we will just do this shit, you know, stupid loud. Okay. We're just going to, we're going to, we're going to take this music that nobody's liking in, in the clubs as country music. And we're going to do it just like stupid loud. And we're going to be louder than uncle Tupelo. And we're going to be like crazier. And we're going to be just like, it's just going to be stupid because it's like, okay, they're better than us, but they're not going to be louder than us. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't. And they, you know, they always stayed, they probably, well, better is subjective, you know, because we, we definitely drew a crowd of really lunatic fringe people because we were probably that crazy. I mean, it was like, you know, it was pr like performance art whenever chicken truck would play. It was just like berserk stuff, but uh, that's how I met, you know, and, and but what, what happened, you know, I've, I've skipped a part here, but we went up and saw them and then, you know, it was like a, you know, happy homecoming again. We hadn't seen each other for like five or six years, something like that. And, and finally, Jay started talking to me and, you know, and it was like everything was kind of friendly. So they got us our first chicken truck gig in St. Louis opening for them. So it's kind of like, it was almost like this little music scene that only existed between us and them. You know, it was like, it wasn't really even a music scene. It was kind of like they allowed us into their music scene is what it was. But it's, but because you know, nobody could really pair us with anybody but them and people, you know, and it was kind of like, we were the odd ducks. We were kind of like, you know, the country bands that weren't really country bands. And that wasn't really going on in St. Louis back then. You know, it was kind of like. It was, we were, I don't know, I wouldn't say pioneers, but we were the only ones doing it. But yeah, it's all part of the same story. What was going on was, that, you know, we were, once we got onto the gigs with Uncle Tupelo, it was just like this continual one-upmanship, you know, and they weren't really trying. They were just, we were just always trying to one-up them, which made us better, you know, and we were trying to be as good as they were. And, and we, it was good. It was a good ad kind of, you know, friendly adversarial kind of thing between two punk rock and loud ass country bands. And so, but what happened was in the continual, you know, pairing of ourselves with them and, and they do this, well, we'll do this. Well, they got a record deal. And then all of a sudden we wanted a record deal. And it was like, <laughs> well, if they got it. We're going to get it. And it's like, but what happened was then Bob, our bass player, was going to have no part of that. He did not want to leave town. He did not want to go on the road. He did not want to do none of that. He was not into that. He liked playing once a month, you know, dreaming for the whole month of the craziest shit we could do at the next show. You know, <laughs> like, like, just like, I mean, we had like, we had, you know, we would put up like the giant, we were voted Riverfront Times third best country and Western band. So, you know, we made the big backdrop, St. St. Louis's third best country western <laughs> band. And we brought we brought bales of hay and set them around the stage. And we would like, we had the, we did the Festus Chainsaw Massacre, which was a famous show in St. Louis. I can't remember the date. It was 1988. But it was, it was crazy. It was like, we, we, we spent, we didn't make any money. We weren't in it to make money. So it's like, you know, we got one of these keyboards that like played music on its own. But we had like Chicken Man, who was like Bob Parr's cousin, who we who we spent all our money to rent him a tuxedo, to like sit there and and like like look like he was playing like Can't Smile Without You on this. 
this is the way it went. It was stuff like this. And then we like, we like had a bucket. I, I bucket of chicken was involved. We had a dollar dance where you put a dollar in to the bucket of chicken and you could dance with a member of the band or it was, <laughs> it was just, that's the kind of stuff we would do. We would do all this while playing like the loudest, loudest, craziest music. And so, uh, but what happened was they got the record deal. We wanted the record deal. Bob didn't want to do it. He didn't want to even chase it down. And so that was a big issue, you know, because we wanted it really bad. And then it was just kind of like when Bob left, well, his brother Tom was in the band too. So when Bob left, Tom was, he didn't, the band broke up basically. That was the end of it. It wasn't like we weren't going to try to find another guy because it was just like, it was like, no, we didn't want another guy to get a record deal. We wanted that band to get a record deal. And whenever it wasn't going to happen, it kind of like broke everybody's heart. And it was just kind of like, well, then, you know, fuck it. You know, we're not, if, if we ain't going to be able to do this with the four of us, we ain't going to do this. So then what happened was, as soon as that happened, that was Uncle Tupelo's first record deal. I was a free man with nothing to do. I just, you know, said, hey, you guys want somebody to come on the road with you? And they said, sure. Because, you know, we used to always have fun together, you know, getting drunk and whatever. So I was a, uh, never a, I don't think I was ever officially hired as anything. I was just like, sure, come along. And then as I rode along with them, you know, I started kind of helping do little things. And, and then after I started helping do little things, they started paying me a little bit of money. And, and, and then it was, you know, I was kind of like a roadie, but I kind of, I kind of was just more just like a dude that came along with them was kind of like what I was. And that lasted for shit from 1990 till 93, three years I did that. Yeah, I can't remember who gave us that that CD, but it but it was never mine before like pre-released, you know. It was like it was like it wasn't it wasn't out to the public yet or whatever. And uh and you know, Jeff Tweedy used to listen to every CD that anyone would ever give him. You know, and I can't remember who gave us that CD. Maybe it was Kurt Cobain. Hell, I don't remember. I was drunk back then. But anyway, and, you know, he would have been nobody to me at that time anyway. It might have been him. What do I know? But it's like, but, you know, Jeff used to listen to everything, and we'd put CDs in and listen to them and, you know, and take them out and listen to other ones. like that. And I, re I remember Nevermind was the one that Jeff stuck in there, and we all just kind of went, eh, you know. It was, it, it like didn't stick out to us at all with like, we, you know, we'd listen to a hundred CDs a day in that damn van. And, and that one was, didn't, didn't stand out in any way to us whatsoever. I think I remember you saying that uh, you had a, like a ghetto blaster, a yeah. jam box up on the dash. Yep. Yeah. That van was a piece of shit. It was like the radio didn't work. Stereo didn't work. Uh, Tweety used to chew tobacco back in those days and spit in a cup and it would all like friggin' you know, get spilled and run down the doghouse of the van. And we had a boom box that would sit up on the, the dashboard and the air conditioning didn't work and transmission barely worked. That doghouse was the nastiest thing ever with tobacco spit and everything all down it. And then whenever that van finally died, they got a new van that did not have a doghouse. So they removed the one from the old van and put it on the new van because it fit exactly. So there was never getting any away from the tobacco-stained doghouse of the original blue van. But yeah, we, we used to run through the CDs. But yeah, I, I remember 
that never mind just didn't stick out to us in any way whenever we were just running through the the latest pile of CDs or cassettes or whatever the hell they were in those days. They were probably were cassettes. You also told me a story about recording AM. You kind of yep. went on for a while about renting a uh, a Vox AC30. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Wilco's AM album. We had just cut the Bottle Rockets. Had just, just. I mean, literally, just finished recording the Brooklyn side. Like, 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 we finished it, and then we had been out on the road for like a week. And then I was flown from Philadelphia, which was the last night of our little tour after finishing the Brooklyn side, flown to Memphis to record AM with Wilco. And so, so because they didn't have a guitar player at that time, they, that Wilco was basically Uncle Tupelo without Jay, was what it was. So they didn't have a guitar player. So somebody, probably Tony Margarita got a hold of me and said, would you come do it? And I said, yeah. So they bought me a plane ticket. Went to Memphis, and I get there, and, and the deal was there was an AC-30, and somebody bought it. I don't know if Jeff bought it. Someone had purchased an AC-30, and they were waiting for it to arrive. And uh, it just, you know, first day it didn't arrive. Everybody would be all bummed out. I eh, couldn't get nothing done on the first day because the Vox wasn't here. Second day it never arrived, and it's like, oh, oh man, the Vox didn't come. Oh. And, you know, so we didn't get much done on the second day, third day. Oh, I don't look like it's going to come again. And then all of a sudden, late that afternoon on the third day, the friggin' Vox arrives. And it's like this magical moment. Now the recording session begins. Uncrated it, you know, pulled it out of the box, set it there in the middle of the floor, looked at it, and then no one ever used it. Finally, I used it. I've just because I've, you know, it had been such a point of like drama and suspense that, that finally, like towards the end of the session, I'm just like, well, son of a bitch, if nobody's going to use this Vox, I'm going to use it. So I plugged into it. And I forget which song I cut with that Vox, but anyway, it did make it on one song on the album and I'm playing through it. So <laughs> <laughs> we were, uh, <clears throat> You know, as the as the Wilco sessions were going on, we were it was you know it was a tense time. It was because what happened was when Tupelo broke up, they had to like put up or shut up. It was kind of like you know they had to do demos, Jay and Jeff, to uh, and turn those in to see if the record company wanted to to you know continue with with either of them or or whatever. So apparently both. Both I was only involved with the Wilco end, so I don't know what I didn't know what Jay was doing. But you know, Wilco passed the demo test, and apparently Jay did too. And so we were uh, we were down there doing the album. We actually made it on to moved on to doing the album, and we're you know, I think everybody was a little bit nervous. I wasn't nervous, you know, because I was just a hired gun, so I was just kind of just observing the whole thing. I think Jeff was probably nervous or whatever. And, and, but you know, we were doing as good a job as we could and you know, the songs were good. You know, it was like, what, what the hell? But then all of a sudden, somehow or other, I can't remember where we found out about it. We heard trace, which was what Jay had done. And we heard it and it was just like, Oh fuck. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, 
oh damn oh shit oh what or oh boy oh, oh, I know I I was I was I was that's when I got nervous I think I got more nervous about it than the other guys did really because either that or they didn't show it as well you know because I heard Jay's and I was just like fuck man we're gonna have to step up we, you know we're gonna have to fucking step but you know Jeff was he was true to his friggin' thing and we stayed with it and you know in the long run it all worked out fine but that was a really 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 kind of like you know heart sinking moment because you know what what we had been working on you know like fucking waiting around for vox amps and then not using them and you know bullshit like that and and then all of a sudden jay comes out and hits hits one like right out of the ballpark you know just kind of blew it blew me away when i heard it and i was just like ah oh, man but it all worked out, so, you know. It was scary, though. That was a scary time in Memphis when we heard that. <laughs> oh, the Coog, the one man. The one man who I have never heard a good story about. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have, from all walks of the music business, everybody has something bad to say about the guy. How can that be? I've never met him. I mean, I've been in the vicinity of him, never met him. But it's like it's amazing from 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 musicians to photographers to security guards. I mean, everybody has something bad to say about the coup. It's like, what is what is with it? I don't know. I don't know. That was the the good coup deal. Was whenever we were we opened for him actually he was playing under an assumed name in columbia missouri at the blue note but everybody found out who it was and and so it was yeah i guess it was had to be bottle rockets open for him and we're you know down in the basement dressing room down there you know hanging out with his band because andy york's in his band and he's a you know friend of mine and 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 you know we're hanging out having a great time you know and all of a sudden some dude comes down the steps and says all right everybody out and so we thought they did, they meant us, but no, he meant his band too. So the whole us and Mellencamp's band had to leave the dressing room and go up and out the back door of the blue note into the parking lot. At which point this dude is like going 30 feet back. <laughs> so we're standing there with his band, you know, Kenny Aronoff and, you know, we're all standing there 30 feet back. So Coog and his wife can walk from like the, the, whatever vehicle they were in into the blue note. So <laughs> that was when I got a taste of the guy, but you know, I never really met the guy, but it's just like, holy shit. You know, that's your band dude. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> always stay 30 feet away from the coog. Stay 30 feet from the coog. It was, it was, I can't believe it's that way all the time. It must've been like something. I don't know what was going on, but. Oh, good Fogarty. Didn't really interact with him a lot, you know. It was it was kind of like between the only time we would he was one of those guys that showed up for sound check and then disappeared, and then he would like not get to the show until showtime. I mean, like literally, like you'd see him like, like the band would be standing there on the side of the stage. They would go out. You wouldn't see John, and then all of a sudden he would just come walking in with a little you know carry on suitcase behind him. And drop it off at the guitar tech station. He'd strap a Les Paul on him and he'd walk straight on the stage and start born on the bayou every night. So it's like, you know, but we would run into him a little bit, like between, like after his sound check and before ours. 
So, you know, there would be like little minutes of, of hanging out with him. But uh, he was he was nice to us. Let's put it that way. He personally chose you guys for the tour. He did. He? he did. He did. It was uh it was it was pretty amazing. He 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 actually it was uh, one of the I, I wouldn't necessarily call this a fun fact. I would call it maybe one of the most stunning things that ever happened to me in the music business was he actually made a point to pull me aside and tell me I was a great rock and roll singer. I mean, John, and, and I mean, it blew my friggin' mind that, that it was, it was just, it was, it, it was, I'm still like, get, get willies thinking about it, but, but you know, but we would run into him. It was, it, it was, wasn't a lot of interaction with him, but his, uh, came to find out somewhere halfway during the tour that his wife worked with my brother-in-law at St. Mary's college in no, in, uh, uh, South Bend, Indiana. So it was like halfway through the dang tour, and all of a sudden, it's like his wife knows my brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just the small world thing. is just kind of friggin' amazing how that stuff happens. But uh, The first time I ever saw him live, it just floored me how many great song after uh, great song after uh, great song, you know, in two yeah. hours of it. I know. Yeah, that tour we did was in 97. That was the, the first year he had decided he would play CCR songs again because he had like been completely against that up till then. So it was a big deal tour, that one was. Blue Moon Swamp Tour. And uh, yeah, I mean, he opened up every night with Born on the Bayou, which was just freaking awesome. The worst gig ever, the worst gig we ever played, I will stand by this to the day I die, was at some festival out in the mountains in California. We flew out there for it. It was Bottle Rockets, still with Tom Parr in the band, when Robert was still on on bass. And we go out there, and uh, for some reason, I had just got a Stratocaster. I, I hate Stratocasters, but I got why well, I just got a new one. So I took that with me. And this is when you could still carry on shit on the airplane, and 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 you know, I, I got it probably because I was thinking of how rugged it would be to just throw on the airplane or whatever. Anyway. So we fly out there for it. We get out there, and it's out in the mountains. It's some kind of like quasi-hippie festivals, really. It was uh, Government Mule were on it. Uh, Phil Lesh was on it. We were on it. Todd Snyder was there. Wilco were there. I forget who else was there. But anyway, before we left, we specified that we needed two uh, Fender 410 basement reissues for rental amps. We don't want Fender Twins. We can't play through Fender Twins. We want 410 basement reissues, two of them. So no problem. Okay, so anyway, we fly out there. We get out to the festival site. We don't have any basement reissues. We have three Fender Twins. They brought us three Fender Twins with like JBL speakers in them. Which, <laughs> and, and all I brought was a Strat and a Tube Screamer. So it's like I sound like friggin' ice picks in, you know, I sound like acupuncture needles in the eyeballs is the sound I'm getting. But that's, but it's like everything went wrong. It was like we played right before Wilco, broad daylight. We had, this was like the early days of those stage tuners, you know, like the, that had the LEDs, and we didn't really know that you can't see those in the daylight. 
One of those so, things you learn the hard way. Right, right. So we can't see our tuners. So the guitars aren't in tune. We're just sucking all over the place. It's like my guitar sounds like I'm plucking on barbed wire. It was just friggin' horrible. We're sucking. We decided we would get Todd Snyder to come up and jam with us on harmonica. And by the time we did that, by the end of the show, he was so high that he couldn't even play harmonica. He was <laughs> he, he was just like squatting down, just kind of going. <laughs> we were we were the lamest looking sickest looking band that you could have ever seen we were fucking horrible and then we go off the stage and wilco come out and look like you know friggin tom petty and the heartbreakers or something i mean they came out and just blew us away like no we have never been more blown away than that we looked pathetic it was god it was a one problem after another god that when we flew all the way to California for that, it was terrible. We talked before about St. Louis and Indianapolis being the same sort of. <laughs> if you're a creative person, it's not always the most nice. welcoming environment. Nope. If you're an athlete, it's a little better. Yep. But uh, you care to expound on that? Yeah, St. Louis. You know, it's it's never been a big arts town at all. They like to, you know, act like they are to some degree. And and it is, but it's it's kind of it's definitely an underground movement, you know. It's like so, and, and music is is the art that that is probably probably the the least, you know, that that they play up. It's a sports town, blue collar sports town. That's that's what you get, you know. It's like it's like is there a highway named after Chuck Berry? No. Is, is there anything? No. Here's what the deal is. It's like if there's one man in town, his name's Joe Edwards. He basically owns University City. He owns like, you know, friggin' the Duck Room and the pageant and all those clubs and, and all that stuff. He'd be bought up that whole strip. He's the guy, if it wasn't for him, there would be no recognition of Chuck Berry in St. Louis whatsoever. I mean, none. There's, there, there would be none. Chuck Berry. I mean, this is Chuck Berry. He's lived there his whole life. That's you know? mind-boggling. Yeah, and it's it's like no recognition of, of him, no recognition of him at all. Yet, Mark McGuire, who isn't even from St. Louis, okay, less than less than a week after he hit that 70th home run, they renamed Interstate 70 Mark McGuire Highway. Okay. Like, 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 it, it, that's how it is. That's the, what you're facing with music in St. Louis. It's kind of like, and it's, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's not, it's not easy to, to be an artist in St. Louis. It, it, you, you can survive, but it's not like other cities. You know, it's, it's. Did you ever meet Chuck Berry? Yes, I did. I did. That was pretty awesome. <clears throat> it was for a photo shoot. For St. Louis Magazine, they were doing a, like musicians of St. Louis, you know, fame. And, and this was back when Johnny Johnson was still alive. And so they had, I actually, they, they had me, they had Jay Farrar, they had Chuck, they had Johnny Johnson. They had, I can't remember who else was in it, a bunch of St. Louis musicians. I still have the magazine at home. But I, I, me and Jay went together. We rode over there together, and Jay had his, like, Chuck Berry Live in London album. You know, and we were gonna—he was gonna get him to autograph that. And we come down. The, it was at Cicero. It, well, it's the Duck Room, which used to be Cicero's, and it's down in the basements where they're having the photo shoot. 
So we go downstairs, and first thing we do when we walk in is Chuck, they're doing a photo shoot of the photo shoot, okay? So there's a photographer taking pictures of the whole setup and the whole bit. First thing we run into, me and Jay, when we walk in there, is Chuck Berry is in the face of the photographer going, look, motherfucker, you keep that fucking thing out of my fucking face. You know, and, <laughs> and Jay's like, oh, I guess this wouldn't be a good time to ask for an autograph now, would it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. So we're kind of, you know, whatever. And, and, and then we, you know, they do the photo shoot and the whole bit. And as soon as that's over, Chuck turns into the nicest guy in the world. I mean, he was just like being a bastard to that photographer before it started. And then as soon as it's over, he was just like going around, you know, like shaking everybody's hand. And, and he finally, he came up to me and he said, now you, I have not met. And I was like, oh, you know, I introduced myself or whatever. And, and he shook my hand and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. The palm of his hand was the size of my whole hand. I mean, he had fingers that came out from that. It was like his, it was the biggest human hand I'd ever seen in my life. It was, it was like that big. His hand is that big. It's like, you know, no wonder he plays in like B flat and all that shit on the guitar. I mean, it's nothing. It's like he's playing mandolin when he's playing guitar. It's how tall is he? He's tall. He's, he's, he's probably, he's probably, he's, I don't know, he's six something. He's a tall dude. Are there any Chuck Berry stories that have been floating around in St. Louis? Oh, I'm sure there are. The, <laughs> the best one Todd Snyder told me, the best Chuck Berry story I ever heard, which was in the Duck Room, which is the club. You know, a lot of, a lot of live shows there. That's where Chuck plays once a month down there. And there's a dressing room, and it has a door in the dressing room. That's a, it's just an emergency exit door, and it always remains locked, and you can't open it. Well, Todd Snyder was playing there, and he was back in the dressing room, and he was sitting back there by himself in the dressing room, just doing a solo gig. He, he told me this story, and he said he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, that door starts to open, and he's like, uh, oh, I wonder what's coming in here, and he comes in, and all of a sudden, he said, it's like, you know, the door opens, and it's Chuck Berry, and it's Chuck Berry with, with a woman. He's, got, he's like Chuck Berry and a white woman, Okay. And, and, and Todd's like, wow, I, I wonder if, like, Chuck just comes and, like, greets everybody that plays St. Louis. <laughs> Is he, like, like the ambassador to St. Louis or something? <laughs> and he said, and, and all of a sudden, then he said, like, Chuck saw him sitting there, and he just, like, backed out the door and shut the door. It's like, apparently, Chuck has the key to that dressing room. <laughs> which, which which has a shower in it and you know the whole bit so i guess that i guess chuck can do whatever he likes down there and <laughs> he didn't know there was a show going on that night <laughs> and chuck's like 80 something years old <laughs> oh yep todd snyder got, got <laughs> messed up chuck's time well, I appreciate you putting up with me. It's a late night. I've, oh, yeah. I have no idea what time it is, but it's late. Oh, well. That's the way it goes sometimes. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Brian Henneman for hanging out with me in a hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia. 
You can find out everything you need to know about Brian at BottleRocketsMusic.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can get one of my fine art photographic prints or one of Amy's CDs or one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and you can leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It'll help us move up in the search rankings and help a lot more people find out about this show. And I might even read it on the air. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.